But I want to take you a bit away from Jerusalem and go to Galilee and, and Samaria. And of course, Jesus spent a lot of time in uh, Galilee, much more than in Jerusalem. I want to look at a site called Magdala, and then we go a brief excursion to Capernaum. We're going to see problems of identification with the site called Bethsaida. I go to the very far north, Abelbet Ma'aka, next to Teldam. And then we make another excursion to Samaria. We're going to see Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal. So here's a map of the Sea of Galilee. And at the north, you can see where Bethsaida is on the east side. Here's the River Jordan coming in. Uh, here's Capernaum with a very spectacular harbor and uh, Tapka. And here's Magdala, just north of Tiberias. And excavations have taken place in Magdala and, of course, in Capernaum and in Bethsaida. Those three places I want to uh, have a look at with you. So here's a photograph. Um, you can see the road here coming down or going up uh, from Tiberias, which is far beyond here. And then the road goes here. And when it veers away from the coastline, then in excavations, they found some amazing uh, finds. Uh, the site has been developed by the Franciscans to build a big guest house there, but had to modify their plans in the wake of the uh, of the archaeological excavations. And so this is what they have built so far. Here's a big guest house with uh, a church built over an ancient synagogue and uh, other remains. Now, the most interesting find was uh, quite a while ago, was a synagogue of the first century. So here you can see the, the walls of the synagogue. And there's a study room in front of it, pillars to support the roof, mosaic floors. And of course, the interesting point from, for us is uh, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, uh, Magdalene means Mary of Magdala. Uh, she must have lived here for uh, a while. And of course, that's where Jesus met her. And he uh, cast seven demons out of her as she became one of the most devoted uh, disciples of Jesus. Uh, but this was the city she lived in. It was a very wealthy city. So here you can see the remains of the synagogue, for example. Here the mosaic floor has got some uh, Greek meander designs. There's a big rosette here. Uh, the benches where people used to sit and a very interesting stone right in the center. That's quite a, a unique find. Here it is. It has all sorts of designs uh, on, on the sides. Each side has a different uh, design, but they're all related to the temple. And there's some shallow uh, parts here in the corners and that probably support a wooden lectern. So it was decorated with relief, the seven branch menorah on the other side, uh, and with amphora and columns. They all reminiscent of the Jerusalem temple. And so I was able to make a, a reconstruction drawing of this synagogue. The synagogue, um, which Mary Magdalene must have been familiar with. So here are the columns that supported the roof and the benches all around. And here's that interesting stone with a wooden platform and that is the, the lectern. 
and here is a study room right in front. So here you can see people walking uh, into through the study room, up some steps, and then they went to the synagogue. And remember, these also always went to preach in the synagogues. Although there's no mention of him preaching in Magdala, the very fact that he went to one of the priestly families in Magdala, where Mary Magdalene came and washed his feet, um, must show that she must have known this place very well. There's a little side room, by the way, where the scrolls were kept. So quite an interesting development and, um, in archaeological, the archaeological world in, in the Sea of Galilee and gives us insight into what kind of city Mary Magdalene lived. I used this uh, stone with the lectern uh, to recreate the interior of the Capernaum synagogue. Because when Jesus in Capernaum or in Nazareth, for example, he stood up for to read. Well, you always stand up here at the lectern, the scrolls laid out on the lectern, and then uh, you give the scroll back to the ruler of the synagogue. And then he sat down to teach, and there was a special chair. Moses' seat is called. They found one in uh, Tiberias and also another one in Chorazin, and there he was speaking, and the people sitting on those benches would be listening to him. I've done quite a bit of research on the city of Capernaum. It's much larger than this excavated area. This area has only been excavated. It was uh, on the Imperial Road to the Via Maris, and there were very wealthy houses and fishermen houses, and here's the synagogue, and here is what is believed to have been Peter's house. So the most interesting building, uh, it was very close to the harbour, Peter may have had his boat here. Uh, there were quite a few rooms, about 10 rooms that belonged to this uh, house of Peter. Often, now Peter's mother-in-law lived there, so she may have a room here, there may have been uh, rooms where guests could stay in it. When Jesus stayed in Capernaum, he made it his home, he may have been living in, in one of these rooms that Peter would have given to him to, to stay in. And here's a, a picture, he was a fisherman, Peter was. And so there's a harbour where he would have placed his boat. He may have had stalls where he sold fish here in, in baskets. And there was an olive tree, women baking bread. And he had two people mending their nets. Uh, maybe one is Peter and Jesus would, would have helped him, I, I, I guess. It gives you an insight into the life of, 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 of Peter. And the harbour itself it was an amazing uh, place with many different peers. And um, here's the synagogue, and this is so-called Peter's house. And the boats came in and out, and it was a very uh, vibrant uh, harbour. So when Jesus went from Nazareth to Capernaum, he didn't go to some obscure place. Though this was a very uh, well-developed city with a with fishing industry, with markets, and on the main road uh, to from Egypt to 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 Damascus, and and it says that you know the fame of Jesus went uh, abroad as far as Assyria. All the travelers would have uh, been telling all about Jesus, and many people came then to Capernaum to be healed by him. Now, Peter and Andrew, at least Peter, must have moved at some time away from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was the original home of Peter and, and Andrew. And uh, it happens sometimes in archaeology, two places that both claim to be Bethsaida. Uh, for many, many years, 
a large excavation has taken place here in at Tel, a bit away from the Seal Gully, as you can see here. And the excavator claimed that this is Bethsaida. But not everybody's happy with it because Bethsaida was a, a fishing village and it is too far away from, from the sea. Uh, but the excavator is quite adamant. And most people believed it for a long time and there are big plaques there showing how the harbor worked and um, big names Bethsaida. And it's lovely to walk around there. And you can see a fisherman's house where they found nets and, and all sorts of things. But also there was a winemaker's house. So people were not only fishermen, they also lived off of agriculture. And it is interesting to think of that side out there. But there's an alternative site here where you can see the excavation that is very close to Seal Galilee. The seashore probably ran, ran here. And when the level is low, then more land is, is visible. Of course, first, the main thing is that Jesus knew Peter and Andrew who came from Bethsaida. And in the excavation, they found um, only a few months ago, a Greek inscription uh, of the Church of the Apostle, which is the Byzantine period uh, church called El Araj. And that's believed to have been built over the house of uh, Peter and, and Andrew, and the cons inscription contains petition by Constantine, the servant of Christ. He may have been the one that donated the mosaic floor to the church and continues with a petition for intercession by St. Peter, chief and commander of the heavenly apostles. So, as I said on the bottom there, archaeology is not an exact science and is open to interpretation. But when you get an, a name, Peter mentioned here, then uh, we need to weigh off which site is the actual site. But to me, it's always interesting to read in the ruins, to whatever the site is, open your Bible and read what uh, Jesus says about, um, about Bethsaida and to know that Peter and Andrew's home was originally in this place. So those were... Um, two or three sites along the Sea of Galilee, but now I want to go further to the north, to Abobet Ma'aka. Here you can see uh, the Sea of Galilee, because Capernaum is right here. The Jordan goes all the way up, and here's Abobet Ma'aka, and here is Dan, and also Eon, and a place called Kinerot, just mentioned recently in Monkings 15, when we did the readings, that Ben Hadad hearkened to Asa, uh, when there was a, 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 a dispute about the border between Israel and Judah, and Baasha had conquered a big territory from Benjamin. And um, so Asa took the gold of the temple of his palace and he sent it to Ben Hadad and he uh, fought then against the city, captured this uh, Eon, here it is, and Dan, yeah, and Abamaka, and all Kinerot. Here's Kinerot. And so all the upper Galilee was conquered by Ben Hader, the king of Syria, so that uh, Baasha had to withdraw and Asa could recapture his territory. But only for the last two or three years, uh, people have been have started to excavate in Abobet Ma'aka. And of course, we know Abobet Ma'aka not only from 2 Kings 15, but earlier, after David had to flee from Absalom, he went to the other side of the Jordan. 
And when he came back, uh, the men of Judah fully accepted him back. He became king for the second time. But there's also a group from Israel who rebelled against David. Uh, you know, every man to your own house, oh Israel, what have we got to do with uh, Judah? And so Sheba, the son of Bichri, uh, he fled to Abamed Ma'aka. And Joab, he went to pursue him. And then we read in 2 Samuel, the men of Mount Ephraim Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, had lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Believe him only, said Joab, to the men on the wall, and I'll depart from the city. And the woman who called herself a mother in Israel, now just like Deborah, Deborah was a mother in Israel, said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. So the wise woman went unto all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and cast it out in Joab. He blew a trumpet and retired from the city of men to his tent, and he returned to Jerusalem. And so Israel was subdued. So basically that this site has been excavated. It's an absolutely magnificent site. Here is Abu Bet Ma'aka. You see, here's the high part of the tell where the Acropolis was, quite a long plug, I used to call it, at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is often covered with snow in the, in the winter time. And here we see then uh, some excavated areas where they start to excavate. This is area A. And I kind of got involved with this excavation because, uh, first of all, the most magnificent magnificent find was uh, the head of this man who's got a kind of a band around his forehead. I'm sure it's not uh, Sheba, the son of Zikri, who was decapitated, but uh, Perhaps part of a statue of the king of Abamed Ma'aka, or a noble or a priest, we don't know, but it's not often you find such a beautiful piece of a, a statue. But Carol Cops, who is a supervisor, and you know, we, we excavate together in, 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 in Jordan as well, uh, she said, I found this place, it is quite puzzling. Can you help me? to interpret this site. So you got a wall here and a wall there is an opening to another side wall. These are two big flat stones lying down and there are mortars here, containers. And here's another picture she sent to me. I'm said the two fallen stones. They may have been standing stones, maybe only one of them. And here's a, a mortar, it's an altar and, and, a, and, a, and kind of a water installation. And I said, what can I make of this? So I made this reconstruction drawing. They found actually antlers of, of large uh, deer. There was an, an oven, a taboon, as you call it, in those mortars, in those jars. They have grapes and grain and, and olives as offerings to the God. He is an incense burning. You see men pouring out water, just like David did. He poured out water, like pouring out the souls of the people. And Antlers also used, they found an, an, a little X here, uh, to cut off the antlers and make tools of it. But they are also used, like a shaman, as a headdress for the priest. And here we see a Phoenician uh, um, influence, where also these antlers have been found, although the use is not absolutely 100% sure. Those standing stones are types of the gods, and in Mesopotamia, they used to drape priestly or the royal garments over this stone 
to show well this actually is a representation of our God. So here we got a religious site in Abu Ma'aka showing influence from Phoenicia and from, from Mesopotamia. And although this woman calls herself a mother of Israel, I doubt if she was a believer, but she was a wise woman and that people listened to her and she saved her city. But also gives you insight into the religious practices of the people far away from Jerusalem in the north of Jerusalem. And of course, it's close to Tel Dan, where Jeroboam had built a temple uh, to the golden calf. And so that is life, gives you an insight into how people lived, what they believed. They were not all true believers in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the, the, the last site I want to share with you is an altar and an inscription that was found on Mount Ebal. has made headlines in the newspapers and, uh, and uh, on television and other programs, but it's sometimes important to, to, to give a word of caution first, because unless you're an archaeologist and you're familiar with the scientific literature, um, we are very careful when we read something in the news first. And if archaeologists first publish something in a newspaper, then we start uh, raising some question marks. Now, a friend of mine, Todd Bolin, who runs BiblePlace.com, he once put up um, some criteria which we should use before we believe if a discovery is sound. So does discovery sound too good to be true? It's probably too good to be true. It's probably bogus. The site archaeologist you never heard of before is probably bogus. Does the report avoid getting input from known experts in the field? If they're avoiding that, then they don't want to be criticized. They, there are no peer reviews. It's probably bogus. Does the alleged discovery require a radical reinterpretation of the Bible? Well, don't believe it. They use language that says this definitely proves this or irrefutable evidence that shows that. I'd be very careful to believe things like that. Does your article mention Ron Wyatt, Bob Cornucke, or Indiana Jones? I say run a mile. And does relate to Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant be very, very suspicious. It's probably bogus. So we, we need to keep these things in mind. If you first hear it in the news and not in peer-reviewed uh, journals, then you've got to be very careful. Now, I was in, involved in the site of Joshua's altar. It's on the eastern slope or northeastern slope of Mount Ebal. It's a very beautiful, isolated place. But you can't see it from Shechem. Shechem is located between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The blessings were pronounced on Mount Gerizim, the curse on Mount Ebal. And Joshua raised up stones there on which he wrote the law. And he also built an altar. And I always thought, well, if you build an altar while the six tribes are here, and you're the tribe on the other, father, you build it in the valley in between the two mountains. But it's on the other side, a very beautiful but isolated place. And you can't see Shechem at all. But you see the big walls here that were built along this side and a, a kind of a building on the very top that was only still working uh, as an archaeologist in, as an architect rather in, in Jerusalem. And the professor I worked for, Benjamin Mazar, told me, hey, go to Mount Ebal and make a drawing of the alchemist they found, the art of Joshua, which is mentioned in Deuteronomy and in, in Joshua chapter 8. And here I'm walking on top of the altar, guided by the excavator, 
uh, Adam Zertal. And here's the drawing uh, which I made. So here's a big stone platform with this kind of four walls, if you can see these lines, and with a stone infill. There are two rooms here and another room there. And this wall that looks like a ramp may have been like that because of the way the site was uh, eroded over time. And here's Kathleen also. Uh, we also went up as a family and here's Adam Sertal explaining the site uh, to her, another woman and Professor Ami Mazar from Hebrew University. And it all sounded very interesting. That was in the 1980s, in 1983 to be precise. And when you excavate, you take a lot of rubble out of the ground and you put it in a, in a dump. Now, recently, uh, people have been uh, going through the dump uh, using wet sifting technique, in which you find much more than you can do with the naked eye if you get the soil into a basket. They found this lead tablet. It's only small, about two centimeters, about an inch square. It was double folded up. You can see the fold line here. And this made absolute headlines in the newspapers, not yet in the archaeological magazines, because they claimed they found a divine name Yahweh on, in proto-alphabetic script. And this Professor Galil from the Haifa University said that the CT scan, the CAT scan of the inside, shows 40 letters written in four lines of chiastic text. As translated by the team, the tablet reads this, cursed, 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 cursed by the god Yahweh, you will die, cursed, then goes to the way around, cursed, you will surely die, cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. And he claims there's the most important inscription ever found in Israel. Well, we found so many more interesting inscriptions, like the, the Shepna inscription, the, the trumpeting inscription, the Temple Mount, and um, if somebody said it's the most important inscription, well, how does it compare with the other inscriptions that we know? And lead tablets, is made of lead, are first introduced in the Hellenistic period. He says, written in archaic script, which he terms proto-alphabetic, that's a new term, never heard of before. He suggests that the use of the name Yahweh, shortened first, not the divine name Yahweh, is clear evidence that the text is an archaic Hebrew inscription, if true, this would make the tablet hundreds of years older than previously known early Hebrew inscription. So if you make statements like this in the newspaper and, or in, in websites, then you got to be extremely careful. Uh, he never asked any uh, well-known epigrapher, and he is Christopher Rolston. He is a very well-known and respected epigrapher from the Georgian, uh, the Washington University. Epigrapher is someone who studies ancient script. Said, I would predict that almost all of the readings posited in the press conference will be vigorously contested once scholars in the field of epigraphy are allowed to see the image. I'm far from convinced of their readings, especially since they have not even provided so much as a single good image. So here people making huge claims and they don't provide any evidence. And that should make one very careful. Now the same professor He's been in the Hezekiah Stone. He claims he found 45 new inscriptions in Hezekiah Stone. And this is one of the photographs. But these are just marks made by the pickaxes of the men who were digging the tunnel. So you've got to be very careful when we hear those uh, very large claims. Are they really true? Or are people 
uh, every day they want to be famous or they want to prove the Bible or whatever their motivation is, this is not a scientific way of reporting new finds. And what can we learn from all this? Why are you following this guy? Well, I said, I'm just following you. And quiet, I'm listening to a podcast. You see, this is not a scientific way of reporting archaeological finds. But still, biblical archaeology has a lot to offer us. Now, what is the value of biblical archaeology? It doesn't form faith. I, I never use biblical archaeology to prove the Bible. The Bible doesn't prove uh, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. I can't prove the resurrection from the Bible from archaeology. I can't prove that Abraham ever existed. So it doesn't form faith, but it can help inform faith. It doesn't prove the Bible, but the illumination it brings to the Bible is unparalleled. It adds insight and more comprehensive details to time periods, like we looked at the time of uh, Amos and King Uzziah, for example, and events the Bible merely mentioned in passing. We got a great insight into the, the, the way people lived in Abba Bet Ma'aka and in Magdala, for example. So biblical archaeology helps us visualize and therefore better understand the events recorded in God's word. So last warning, be careful to check out the sources of information and don't believe sensational claims.